Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing our, or beginning our series, Can I Trust My Bible? And I'm beginning by talking about something that doesn't directly relate to the Bible, but indirectly it has everything to do with it, and that is the probability of God in the first place. Now the problem with talking about these things, and this is going to bother a few of you, is when I'm talking about the proofs for God, and I'm talking about can I trust my Bible, if I'm addressing sort of the little atheist in all of us, I can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. That's called circular reasoning in every logic class in the Western world. And if you've got a little atheism in you, you understand that. So I'm going to be using the Bible some, but talking about the broader issues that are going on in our culture and in our world and in our hearts as it relates to can we believe in God, and then we'll further get into can I trust my Bible. Emma Goldberg writes last year, the Puritan colonists who settled in New England in the 1630s had a nagging concern about the churches they were building. How would they ensure that the clergy would be literate? Their answer was Harvard University. It was Harvard Divinity School, a school that was established to educate the ministry and adopted the motto, this is Harvard's motto, truth for Christ and the church. It was named after a pastor, John Harvard, and it would be more than 70 years before the school had a president who wasn't a pastor. Nearly four centuries later, Harvard's organization of chaplains has elected as its next president an atheist named Greg Epstein. Epstein, author of the book Good Without God, is a seemingly unusual choice for the role. Yet many Harvard students, some raised in families of faith, others never quite certain how to label their religious identities, attest to the influence that Epstein had on their spiritual lives. He said, there's a rising group of people who no longer identify with any religious tradition, but still experience a real need for conversation and support around what it means to be a good human and to live an ethical life. He has been Harvard's humanist chaplain since 2005, teaching students about the progressive movement that centers people's relationships with one another instead of with God. This reflects a broader trend of young people who increasingly identify as spiritual but religiously non-affiliated. That trend might be especially salient at Harvard. A Harvard Crimson survey of the class of 2019 found that those students were two times more likely to identify as atheist or agnostic than 18-year-olds in the general population. Epstein said, we don't look to God for answers. We are each other's answers. Epstein's community has tapped into the growing desire for meaning without faith in God. A.J. Kumar, the president of the Humanist Graduate Student Group said, being able to find values and rituals but not having to believe in magic, by the way, he's referring to us, being able to find values and rituals but not having to believe in magic, that's a powerful thing. What a statement. The atheists, and I want to give them credit for this because old atheism didn't really do this, but new atheism does a little bit more, is concerned about values and ethics in the world. The atheists are sincerely trying to create meaning and value in life, 
And yet they view those of us who believe in God and that those things come from God as gullible and believing in magic. Now, the point of that article, though, is how did we get to the point where the atheists are the theological experts and are chaplains in historic divinity schools, and the theists and the clergy who are theists believing in God are foolish because we believe in magic as it relates to theology. This didn't just happen by chance, and it didn't just happen overnight. There has been a massive shift. I'm going to introduce a word to you. You probably have heard it. There has been a massive shift in epistemology, which is how we discover and know truth. And that is fundamentally important to our whole series here. How do we discover and know something is true today? So today we're beginning this new series, Can I Trust My Bible? You might say, Paul, why the discussion about atheism? Let's just start with God. Why the probability of God? Well, for four reasons. Thanks for asking, though. Maybe you have a little bit of an inclination towards atheism. Maybe in your moments of doubt, you're thinking, what if the atheists are right? Wouldn't be unusual in our culture, especially those of you who are younger. There's a little atheist in all of us. Maybe you know somebody, and maybe this will help you to be able to discuss things with them. My primary reason for including it at the beginning of this series, however, is this. I want to cover all the possible realities, and here are the three possible realities we're going to be talking about in this series. One, there is no God. We're talking about that today. I'm not in that camp, by the way. There is no God. Number two, there is a God that we know about. He has revealed himself, and he's revealed in one of the major religions. Might be Christianity, might be Buddhism, might be Hinduism, might be Islam, but there is a God, and it's a God we know about, and he's revealed himself. Or three, there is a God that exists that we don't know about, and the agnostics are right. We just can't know. Those are the three possibilities. No God, a God who has revealed himself that we know about, or a God we don't know about. I can't think of a fourth option. Now another reason we're gonna talk about this, however, is atheists have been dealt an unfair advantage in the epistemology discussion. And I'm gonna talk about that in a moment. But today, we're gonna to argue for the Bible by addressing really its greatest foes, which tend to be atheists. So I'm going to look at, with you, five reasons for the probability of God. Beginning with the probability of God. Not the Bible, yet. We'll talk about it some today, more in the coming weeks. But five reasons for the probability of God. First, God has been unfairly handicapped in the epistemology arena, which we just mentioned a moment ago. Now you say, what is epistemology? It's what distinguishes justified belief from opinion, all right? It's what distinguishes justified belief, where you've really got reasons to believe, reason brings you to it, logic brings you to it, from just opinion. Boy, could we use a better epistemology in the world today, right? With the social media and the world as it is, it's hard to know what to believe about anything, and to be honest with you, part of that is because of a crisis in epistemology. It's how we know what we know. It's a term that comes from philosophy. How do we know what we know? And there are long-standing debates in philosophy and theology and science about how we know what we know. Now, some theologians, some people in my position, would say, 
we should just simply begin with God as the first truth. I shouldn't even preach this sermon. We should start next week with God. These people would tend to say, Paul, what you should do is you should get up there and just quote the Bible and leave the rest to God's spirit because God said his word won't return void. Now, that's going to be a problem for anyone who would say, well, I don't believe in God in the first place and I don't believe in the Bible in the first place. And I personally have a problem with it too, and I'll tell you why. If the idea of God doesn't make sense, why would the scriptures? There are other people historically in church history, and Thomas Aquinas, who was a Catholic theologian, made this thinking somewhat famous. He sought to prove God's existence outside of the scriptures as well to lead people to the scriptures and to God. And he was a proponent of what's called natural theology. I also would be a proponent of natural theology. And by the way, just to let you know I'm in good company, so is God. And let me explain. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's a part of natural theology. It's a belief that we can use things outside of the scriptures as well to point to God. Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20, I'm gonna show you this one on the screen where Paul is talking about human lostness and he says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, within us. For God made it evident to them For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Paul writes in the first chapter of Romans that human beings have no right to not believe in God because creation itself screams that there is a God. We learn certain things about him in the natural world. That's natural theology. It's why I say God is a proponent of it too. He created the concept. But here's the problem. Natural theology has been hijacked. We don't get to use that in the world today, and I'll tell you why. Neil Gillespie writes about this when he was writing about Darwin's origin of the species that uh, was uh, first published in 1859. And there was, that was just a sea change in epistemology. So in 1859, Darwin, you know, I don't know, goes to the Galapagos, sees some interesting stuff, and develops his theory, writes Origin of the Species. Darwin's rejection of special creation, or God creating out of nothing, was part of the transformation of biology. One committed to thoroughly naturalistic explanations based on material causes and the uniformity of nature. So after Darwin wrote that book, before then most people in the Western world believed the Bible was God's word. After Darwin wrote that book, only natural causes could be valid as a means to understanding reality and truth. The scientific method would demand observation and hypotheses and then experimental testing to repeat those observations, etc. And here's the problem. This book cannot pass that test by the nature of many of its claims. And I'll explain why in a few moments. Science at that point became the judge of theology. Science's view of religion was basically this. Religious beliefs are reasonable. J.P. Moreland writes about this. Religious beliefs are reasonable only if science says they're reasonable. Religious beliefs are unreasonable if science says they're unreasonable. Religious beliefs are reasonable only if arrived at by something closely akin to the scientific method. 
Now, here's the problem with that. If that's the rules of science, if those are the rules of science, here's the problem. God wants to reveal himself to you, and he has revealed himself to you by breaking into a closed natural system, a system of natural laws of his own creation. He did it. He created it. It operates because he created it this way. But the only way to know he's breaking into it and revealing himself is he chooses miracles. Like the virgin birth, healing people, walking on water, the resurrection, all of which are not repeatable, observable, etc., by the scientific method. Science says they're impossible, therefore case closed, because we don't repeat virgin births. Science says they're impossible because healings can't be explained scientifically. Modern views of science have locked God out of his own proof plan. That's a problem. That's a real problem. What's a God to do? What's a God to do when he thought miracles would be the way that we would know that he showed up and miracles are the very thing that science can no longer accept? Well, that's not science. Science itself doesn't follow these rules. Do you know how much speculation goes on in fields of science? Let me give you a few examples. Everyone in geology agrees we've got massive amounts of fossil fuels all over the world, and that there must have been some sort of massive catastrophe in the past that created all sorts of sediment and, and a rolling of you know, all sorts of sediments and oceans and so on over land. And we all agree with it, except it can't be the flood as described in Genesis 6. It can't be that, even though it explains it pretty well. Do you know how much speculation goes on in the world of astronomy? I said a couple of weeks ago that the Big Bang Theory is under attack by secular atheists. Not by Christians, by secular atheists. And some of you think I believe in a flat earth by saying that. No, it's the atheists who don't agree with the Big Bang anymore. There's all kinds of speculation and computer modeling in astronomy. There are all kinds of things like that going on in many fields of science. Biology, where if, if scientific method is supposed to be relied upon, where are all the transitional species that we were supposed to discover that, by the way, Darwin talked about and Darwin said that his theory would crumble if the fossil record didn't improve. And by the way, it hasn't really improved that much. We find more of the same and a few new things, but not intermediate species. Second, we all exercise faith, especially in the realm of first cause. The Bible begins, in the beginning, God. Atheism begins, in the beginning, any material or naturalistic explanation, energy, matter, something like that. Now here's where we are all equal in this debate. I cannot explain God's origin. When I think about it, my brain hurts. Yours does too. How do you explain the infinity of God? How do you explain a God who has always existed who never had a beginning? I cannot explain that. The only explanation I can give is God said he's self-existent. He said I am that I am. He gave us this name for himself, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, Lord in capital letters that we have in our Bible. It's the to be verb. He basically said I am and I've always been. So like, that's it. Case closed. Well, that doesn't really solve it for me. I want to be able to think about, you know, yeah, but how far back? 
we have a problem as theists. But the atheist has exactly the same problem. The Big Bang, if it is true, and again, atheist astronomers don't necessarily believe it. Your science textbook probably have not been updated yet. They don't even believe it necessarily, but let's say it's the Big Bang. Well, who's the Big Banger? Who's the, who's, who, you know, who kick-started that big boy? Who was the first cause? Who is the first mover? That's a problem for atheists. The ground is level at the foundation of this discussion. We all exercise faith in the realm of first cause. There is no home field advantage for the atheist that says, oh, why would you believe God did that? Well, why would you believe that matter or energy started all of this? What, what, what kicked it off? We all have the same problem. At the 2016 Isaac Asimov Memorial Debate, it was at the Museum of Natural History. The question of whether or not the universe is a simulation was addressed. A simulation, like the Matrix. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who was hosting the debate, said that he thinks the likelihood of the universe being a simulation may be very high. But he says he wouldn't be surprised if he were to find out somehow that someone else is responsible for our universe. Now, this is really, this is one of the smartest people in the world in, in this area, and it's laughable what is said here. Tyson uses a thought experiment to imagine a life form that's, much smarter, that's as much smarter than us as we are than dogs, chimps, and other terrestrial animals, especially cats. What would we look like to them? We would be drooling, blithering idiots in their presence, he says. Whatever that being is, in other words, there's some great intelligence in the universe, whatever that being is, it's very well might be able to create a simulation of a universe. So what he's saying is, basically, the Martians did it, and they're smarter than us. Tyson goes on to say, and if that's the case, it is easy for me to imagine that everything in our lives is just a creation of some other entity for their entertainment. Tyson says, I'm saying the day we learn that it is true, I will be the only one in the room saying I'm not surprised. Commenting on this article, Albert Moeller says, so a man who denies the very possibility of divine creation of the cosmos is here willing to entertain in public the idea that some higher species has merely created all of this as a simulation for that being's own entertainment. Think about that. Some of the smartest people in the world are willing to say it can't be God, but it might be another species that's just way smarter than us that just created us. Kind of, you know, we're like the petting zoo, just as an advertisement for next week. Sometimes the evidence doesn't matter. And when you hear science says this or science says that, you need to understand that an awful lot of people who proclaim atheism and studies have been done on this, social studies have been done on this. A lot of them are atheists, not because of scientific evidence, but because of woundedness in religion and in family. There's studies on this. Some of you get there because of science. Some of you get there because of life. Sometimes we just don't want to believe in God. But we all exercise faith when it comes to first cause. Next, third, history or historic geology and astronomy cannot explain the universe as we know it. 
Now, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that astrophysicists are now questioning the Big Bang. And the Big Bang is their own creation. And, you know, a lot of Christians believe in the Big Bang. They just would say that God did it that way. And so I don't, I'm not threatened by that in any way. But it's, it's astrophysicists, it's not Paul, that are questioning the Big Bang. That's just the debate about first cause in the universe. But there's so much more in this arena that points to God. An article in Discovery Magazine noted a new study that suggests there are about 700 quintillion planets in the universe. That's quintillion. But only one like Earth. One out of 700 quintillion. The article says it's a revelation that's both beautiful and terrifying at the same time. Astrophysicist Eric Zacharyson from Uppsala University in Sweden arrived at this staggering figure, seven followed by 20 years, with the aid of a computer model. He found that Earth appears to have been dealt a fairly lucky hand. In a galaxy like the Milky Way, most of the planets in his model generated looked very different than Earth. They were larger, older, very unlikely to support life. One of the most fundamental requirements for a planet to sustain life is to orbit in the habitable zone of a star, the Goldilocks region where the temperature is just right and liquid water can exist. In conclusion, he said, Earth is more than your garden variety planet. Well, just let me tell you how much so. One of the most astonishing discoveries astrophysicists have made in recent decades is that if gravity were just one trillionth of a percent stronger, one trillionth of a percent, our universe would have reversed course long ago. It would have collapsed catastrophically. So these are people probably who believe the Big Bang saying we would have had the big collapse if it wasn't just a little, if it was a little stronger. It would have collapsed catastrophically, ending in a big crunch, the opposite of the Big Bang. Likewise, if gravity were just one trillionth of one percent weaker, our universe would have flown apart so rapidly that planets, stars, galaxies, the basic constituents of the universe would have never had a chance to coalesce. We'd all be dust in the wind, hence the great hit from the 70s. Is it an accident that everything turned out so well? That gravity is not too strong, not too weak, but just right by a trillionth of a percent. Sir Fred Hoyle, the late University of Cambridge astronomer and avowed atheist, didn't think so, not for a second. After doing innumerable computations, he discovered that the odds of our being accidents of nature are comparable to the likelihood of our tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling scrap metal into a fully functioning Boeing 747. And he arrived at the conclusion that it's the outcome of intelligent design, and he is not a believer in the Bible or of God. He is an atheist. It gets better. A few other things about the world we live in that point to the idea of God. Any appreciable change in the rate of rotation of the earth would make life impossible. If we rotated at a tenth of our present rate, things slower, All plant life would either be burnt to a crisp during the day or freeze at night, just the rotational speed of the earth. If that changed, we're done. Temperature variations are kept within reasonable limits due to the near circular orbit of the earth around the sun. It's very circular, it's not oblong. If it's oblong, we don't do real well at night, we freeze. It'd be like Calgary in winter. Only worse. Temperature extremes are further moderated by the water vapor and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that produce a greenhouse effect. By the way, there have been also um, chemists trying to say we can't really create carbon dioxide so common in our world and so necessary to life. It's like we we can't put the molecules together to create it ourselves. 
The moon revolves around the earth at a distance of 240,000 miles, causing harmless tides on the earth. If the moon were a lot closer to earth, do you know what would happen every night? Every continent on the planet would be submerged in the ocean. Right around the globe, one after another. We'd be open for business during the day, wet at night. Just because of the moon's distance, the thickness of the earth's crust, the depth of the oceans appear to be carefully designed. Increases in thickness of depth of only a few feet would so drastically alter the absorption of free oxygen and carbon dioxide that plants and animals could not exist. Just the depth of the earth's crust. The earth's axis, its tilt, 23 and a half degrees from the perpendicular to the plane of its orbit. This tilting, combined with the earth's revolution around the sun, causes our seasons, which are important for raising food. The earth's atmosphere, or ozone layer, serves as a protective shield from solar, uh, lethal solar radiation, which would otherwise destroy all life. Our atmosphere also serves to protect the earth from approximately, get this, 20 million meteors a day at speeds of 30 miles per second. Without this crucial protection, the danger to life would be immense. We would not last a day in the universe without that. The earth is the perfect physical size and mass to support life, according to uh, affording a careful balance between gravitational forces, essential for holding water and atmosphere. The two primary constituents of the Earth's atmosphere are nitrogen and oxygen. This delicate and critical ratio is essential to all life forms, etc., etc., etc. Writers are writing about this every day. Is the probability of God really a stretch? Because geology and astronomy can't explain the precision of the universe and the precision of a placement of our planet that allows us to be here alive today. There's no evidence there's any other place in the universe like it. Fourth, historic biology and macroevolution and the fossil record cannot explain the world as we know it. Legendary British philosopher, again, atheist, Anthony Flew, turned from atheism at the age of 81. A noted critic of God's existence for several decades, he published books like God in Philosophy and the Presumption of Atheism. He was interviewed. Dr. Gary Habermas, philosopher and historian, debated Professor Flew several times, and they maintained a friendship despite many years of disagreement over the existence of God during his regular career. Habermas interviewed Flew in 2004, and this is part of the discussion. Which arguments for God's existence did you find most persuasive? Flew said, I think that the most impressive arguments for God's existence are those that are supported by recent scientific discoveries. I think the argument to intelligent design is enormously stronger than when I first met it. Atheists recognize the growing support for belief in God. The scientific community is deeply inconvenienced these days by science. Science that doesn't support historic claims about evolution. And some of them are admitting it. If they admit it too loudly, by the way, many of them are losing their jobs and their tenures in major universities in North America. But some of them are admitting it and writing about it. Life does not arise from non living matter. Evolution News, last year, 2-19-21. A recent survey polled people with an average age of 38. 
80% had college degrees. The results revealed a lot of ignorance about origin of life research and the success of life creating, uh, the success of life creating life from non-living matter, or abiogenesis. More than 41% thought that, get this, more than 41% of people, most with college degrees, thought that researchers had created complex life forms from scratch. They thought researchers in the lab today are creating frogs using simple chemicals and conditions that approximate Earth's early atmosphere. These are college-educated people saying, we got researchers making frogs right and left. Remarkably, more than 72% of respondents thought origin of life researchers had created simple life forms from scratch, such as bacteria. To put it kindly, the respondents' great expectations about the accomplishments of origin of life researchers are wrong and wildly so. Researchers have not created frogs or bacteria from simple chemicals in the lab. They haven't created a functional membrane or flagella or cilia or any of dozens of molecular machines or the DNA required for even the simplest living bacteria. We can't create life. The modern theories of science were created before modern science. And modern science is destroying what is being accepted as the modern theory in many of these disciplines. Biochemistry is crushing evolution. It is kicking its butt. Can I say butt in church? Michael Denton, although the tiniest bacterial cells are incredibly small, each is in effect a veritable micro-miniatures factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery. So this is a bacterium made up of 100,000 million atoms. That's one bacterium. 100,000 million atoms. Far more complicated than any machine built by man, absolutely without parable, parable, parallel in the non-living world. He's a molecular biologist. You see? The simplest bacteria is 100,000 million atoms. The universe, the Big Bang, to me, that's the easy stuff compared to life. Biologists would have us believe that everything began with a simple organism that somehow came out of non-living matter, and our simplest organisms have 100,000 million atoms. Somehow life began. And even though it goes against natural laws of entropy and decay and that things don't get better and better, they get worse and worse, which are accepted natural laws, even though it against, goes against all of that, somehow these little organisms that began from nothing, from non-living material, ingeniously progressed as if they were brilliant, as if they were almost godlike. Eyes developed. The miracle of sight over millions of years these little creatures were developing organs that were not in use for millions of years until finally they were. Hearing developed, the miracle of hearing. Sexuality developed, the difference between a male and a female, and yet somehow these little creatures with their brilliance were able to, to reproduce for millions and millions and millions of years until suddenly their sex organs appeared and they were able to figure out how to use them. How did all living things exist and, and propagate before they could see, hear, copulate? The fossil record was expected to demonstrate all of the stages between modern species. Darwin knew this. He knew his theory depended upon a better fossil record or we would throw it out. 
There are atheists and macroevolutionists who are actually being converted to theism because of the idea of beauty in the cosmos. How would you ever just say, I believe in macroevolution, that there's sort of a survival of the fittest and get beauty? Why beauty? Why flowers and the, the bouquet that God has created? Why butterflies? Why bees? Why the color? Do you know there are things in the world that like only bees can see and we can't see them because they have a different kind of sight? The incredible intelligence behind beauty in the universe. Paleontology teaches us that great amounts of time exist between rock layers and the Earth's crust. And, you know, we explain this progression of species by just adding hundreds of millions of years, and each layer represents hundreds of millions of years. And each layer should give us an advancement then in complexity of life forms. And yet, when you look at the fossil record around the world, we have examples of violations of this record all over the place. Human footprints with dinosaurs, a dinosaur that was supposed to have been extinct 50 million years ago that was caught in a net by Japanese fishermen in 1977, and we have pictures of it, but it was extinct 50 million years ago. Human skeletons and coal deposits, coal deposits supposedly created millions of years before we ever would have had humans. Massive evidence of a major catastrophe that buried immense organic material under massive violent sediment settling, which I would just say maybe the flood would be an alternative explanation. Historic biology and macroevolution and the fossil record just don't explain the world as we know it. It is too complex, and the pieces don't fit. And the people who came up with the theory said, if we don't find this evidence in the future, you would be right to question my theory. Finally, the moral nature of man argues for a moral designer. How do we make the leap to moral beings in the evolutionary ladder? You know, we're all sort of wandering around at some point, and Neanderthals, I guess. And we sort of look at each other across the field, you know, maybe we should organize ourselves, you know. Maybe we should have some morals. You know, let's talk about that. So actually, we should probably create some sort of speech, and we get together, we're going to create some morals, we're going to call them rules to live by. And we've got to figure out how to get a conscience in each of us so we have some sort of a guide on the inside and then there's got to be like a dashboard light that goes off when we do the wrong thing. We're going to call that guilt. And in order to put some real power behind this, we're going to create some sort of divine being. We're going to call him God that will punish or reward us. I suppose that's one explanation. Or, as the Bible does claim, God has placed eternity in our hearts. That we are intuitively different than everything else that we will always be searching, which is why human beings everywhere on the planet in the most primitive of cultures are inherently religious in some way because there is within them the knowledge and understanding that there's something more in the world than them and they reflect it morally. I wanna just close with three apps. One, not all sciences are equally committed to the scientific method as now defined. Not all disciplines are created equal. I have a tremendous respect for true science. You know, if you, you get a bunch of chemists in a lab creating a, a drug to solve a problem and, and, you know, they can repeat it over and over and over, some form of chemotherapy that's going to kill some form of stage four cancer, and they prove it over and over and over in a, in a dish and then in human body and in trials. I mean, that, that to me is science. It's observable. It's repeatable. It's, it's testing. But I think we'd all agree there are, there are parts of science that are given the same 
latitude as that that maybe shouldn't be. Let me give you a couple of examples. Not to start a war right before the dunk tank. But I'm in Alberta. This is oil country. I think I can say this in Alberta. There's a lot of modeling that goes on in the global warming debate, and it's viewed as science. Like, it's just gospel. Now, I've lived long enough to know that, I mean, the world is probably warming up, but it's been going on for thousands of years. We did have an ice age here, so I'm not saying there's not global warming. I'm not saying there's not climate change. I'm saying a lot of it, though, is scientists using computer modeling. That's not exactly the same as a chemist making a drug. It's just not the same. The Big Bang Theory has been viewed as science for decades, and it's the astrophysicists who are saying it might not be true, and they're using all sorts of modeling to create it in the first place. We've had a massive worldwide debate about how to solve a pandemic, and the phrase keeps being thrown at us, follow the science. And we can't agree on what the science is. Would you agree we can't agree? I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, I'm double vaccinated, don't shoot me. All right, again, I'm just saying we don't all agree about what the science is. We should not have debates about what the science is. It should be obvious if it's science. Much of the atheist science begins with any explanation but God. Any explanation but God. Second, atheism believes in miracles also perhaps more than theism. Now, I really, if, if you're an atheist or an agnostic and, and you tend towards this, I, I really mean this, and I don't mean this to chide you in any way. I really want you to think and be critical about this. I want you to think about what you're asking out of your belief system. Matter from nothing. Matter from nothing. Well, that's better than Jesus feeding the 5,000. He started with a lunch. But to get the universe, you're saying matter from nothing. How the universe formed. The, the, the Big Bang, if it's true, that is like the best miracle ever because it's never happened before and it's not repeatable or observable again. That, to me, is almost the definition of a miracle. Life from non-living matter, that's a first Life from non-living matter, that is the very definition of a miracle from a theist's standpoint. Plus, trillions of species-specific mutations that had never happened in the history of the world before. Trillions of species-specific mutations that allowed things to change and be better than they had ever been before. At least Jesus, when he healed the blind, started with an eye. Atheism gives us eyes. That's a lot to ask of your system of belief, and that's why I say atheism begins or believes in miracles also, and in many ways more than theism does. We just explain them in the beginning, God. Now, I realize that in a congregation the size this morning, there's a whole bunch of you who believe in evolution, and you just believe God guided the process. It's called theistic evolution. It's hugely popular in Christianity in Europe. It probably is here as well. And I get that. I just personally don't believe in it. I believe in microevolution of species. We say it all the time. There's 200 kinds of dogs. They didn't all come from 200 kinds of dogs at creation. There, unfortunately, are probably 200 kinds of cats. Shouldn't be any. 
not an example of things getting better and better. But nonetheless, well, that did it. Anyway, so the reality is we have all of these expectations in evolution. Theistic evolution says that God guided that process. Now, the reality is we might get to heaven and find out that's true. The problem is if you choose to believe in theistic evolution, I just want to tell you a couple things you're going to run into. Jesus talks about Adam and Eve and creation. Jesus talks about the flood, which is a solution to a lot of the geology discussions. So if you're going to believe a theist, if you're going to be a theistic evolutionist, you've got to then deal with the fact that it was Jesus wrong about multiple early earth issues, and that's a problem for you. I love you. I'm going to spend eternity with you. But when we get up there, I'm going to say I told you so. Hence what you're going to do to me today in the dunk tank. Third, wise men still look for God. I just don't want you to leave with the idea that smart people all believe this stuff and we're the flat earthers who had to swallow our brains. Some contemporary scientists argue that science and Christianity are completely incompatible. In a recent interview, the atheist scientist Richard Dawkins said that he'll keep showing hostility to any alternative to science, such as religion of any kind, because faith or religion is sapping education and depriving young people of the true glory of the scientific worldview. He said it's tragic to see children being led into dark, pokey little corners of medieval superstition. And according to this viewpoint, scientists are people of reason, but not faith. Now what's interesting is this. Now I'm gonna have to use a survey from the states, sorry about that, but there's all sorts of sociological surveys from the states that are just easy to get. There's just a lot of people down there. I know they're annoying, but there's a lot of them there. I get it. You guys are all nicer than Americans. I'm with you. Results from a recent survey suggest that science and Christian faith are not as incompatible as you might think. In February of 2014, sociologist Elaine Howard Eklund and her colleagues at Rice University and the American Association for the Advancement of Science reported results from the largest study of American views on science and religion. Among the scientists surveyed in this study, 17% said the term evangelical describes them somewhat or very well, compared to 23% of all respondents. So here's the point that she's making. If you look at the U.S. population, those people are considered scientists versus the general population. The religious commitment factor is almost the same between the scientists and the non-scientists. There are all kinds of people who are in the sciences, and the very sciences we're describing who are people of faith. Because real science and the Bible don't disagree. They don't disagree. Keep an open mind. We live in a hostile world towards the things of God. But what if, what if it's true? What if you really can trust it? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this natural law, which Thomas Aquinas talked about, that there, in some ways there are things around us that you talk about that allow us to reason ourselves to, to faith in you. You mention it in Romans. You mention it in the Psalms. You mention it elsewhere. That you make sense in our hearts for many reasons because you've created the world and you've created us. And we see your power and majesty reflected around us. Help us. Help us to be critical thinkers about everything. But help us to be able to be objective by your spirit to believe that you have spoken as well.
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.